It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Twitter strikes again. The latest person to be kicked off the social media site, the MyPillow guy, because he's a pretty dangerous guy. Mike Lindell has been permanently suspended from Twitter. Why? The company says he repeatedly violated its policy on election misinformation. He used his personal Twitter account. He's got about a half million followers or had. Uh, to spread unsubstantiated claims of widespread voter fraud in the presidential election. Uh, hasn't been a great few weeks for Mike Lindell. Uh, you know, he was still visiting President Trump uh, up until the final days of his tenure. Uh, he was photographed walking with some notes in which uh, one of the things written down was martial law. He became a leading proponent. Uh, of uh, the idea the election was stolen. Uh, a bunch of companies have stopped doing business with MyPillow, and yet Lindell says he still uh, hopes to run for governor of Minnesota with Donald Trump's backing. Uh, Trump has off- opened an office in Palm Beach, and there's, there are stories about which Republicans he is going to back in the upcoming 2022 elections. Uh, for example, Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman who everybody likes is a kind of a, he's very moderate in tone and in style. He's a very conservative uh, Republican, but he announced he's not running for re-election. He thinks the Senate is so paralyzed by gridlock that it can't get anything done by partisanship. Uh, Jim Jordan, uh, the uh, congressman from Ohio, thought to be a leading candidate there, and certainly Donald Trump might help him put him over the top. You know, I meant to get to this one yesterday. Uh, Kind of a ludicrous story in the New York Times showing how slim the pickings are now for some kinds of controversies. And remember, it was just, uh, let me think of now, um, six days ago that Donald Trump was still president and we were still in the throes of, you know, uh, the insurrection at the Capitol and stealing the election. And if you look over the whole last four years, I mean, Trump was always, you know, firing somebody or somebody was resigning and writing a book or he was trying to buy Greenland or he was battling with the enemies of the people. That is us, of course, ladies and gentlemen, the press. Uh, you know, it was, as we talked about, you know, for much of those four years, there was constant battles, controversies, chaos, all of which is good if you're in the news business for clicks and ratings. Not necessarily good for the whole country, but good for media folks. Uh, so the New York Times trying fairly desperately, in my view, to kick up some kind of Biden controversy, ran the following story a couple of days ago, and it got mocked a lot for this. President Biden may cast his arrival in the White House as a return to business, as usual, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But there's at least one way he's breaking from prevailing presidential tradition. Ready for this? Are you sitting down? He wears a Rolex. At his inauguration, he was wearing a stainless steel Rolex Datejust. I guess that's the kind of a Rolex. Uh, a model that retails for more than $7,000, and here comes the real cultural critique, is a far cry from the everyman timepieces that every president not named Trump has worn conspicuously in recent decades. To many, that's when you want to give your own opinion, but you don't want to get uh, too much of a soapbox as reporters. They say, to many, a president wearing a luxury watch might not seem unusual. Shouldn't the leader of three world wear a power watch befitting his position? Never mind, it costs the equivalent of a dozen or so stimulus checks. Joe Biden can wear any damn watch he wants. Uh, I guess he's made enough money that he can afford a $7,000 Rolex. But, you know, in the wake of Trump, who has, you know, 
the unbelievable gold-plated apartment at Trump Tower, the absolutely stunning spread at Mar-a-Lago. I've been there. I went down there to interview him uh, during the campaign, I guess. Uh, you know, properties around the world, um, you know, whether he's a billionaire or just a multimillionaire, I suppose maybe we'll never know. So Joe Biden wears a fancy luxury watch, and this is like, oh, my God, how is this allowed? No other presidents have done this except for Trump. I don't even know what kind of watch Trump wore, but certainly he had a lot of money to play with. All right, let's get down to business here, folks, with story number one. A poll. I've been kind of going through cold turkey here. We're no polls, no campaign. The Georgia thing is over. Presidential race is over. We have a new president. What about polls? Well, here's a poll from the Hill and Harris polling. First one I've seen of a, a, a approval rating for President Biden based on his first two days in office. 63% support among registered voters. That's not bad. And 37% say they disapprove of the new president. All right, then you get to the inevitable partisan breakdown in this Hill poll. 94% of Democratic voters approve of Biden's job as president. 62% of independents, not bad. 70% of Republican voters disapprove of Biden's performance so far. I mean, I love the performance thing in that it's only based on his first 48 hours. And yes, he did sign or signal his intention to sign a bunch of executive orders. And, you know, he gave an inaugural speech. It's really kind of like, do you like Joe Biden as president? Do you not like Joe Biden as president? So not surprisingly, Democrats are loving the idea of one of their own. It's been around forever. Sitting in the Oval Office, Republicans, not so much. You get into some of the issues here in this poll. Uh, 61% support for Biden on the economy, stimulating jobs and fighting terrorism. 57% approval on handling of immigration. That's interesting because he put forth this very controversial immigration bill. 60% approval on handling foreign affairs. Strongest support uh, on issues of administering the government. 65%, and handling the pandemic, 69% approval. Well, that's obviously based on the fact that he's talked about it a lot, that he's talked about beefing up the vaccine rollout program, which is an absolute bleeping mess. I got to tell you, in one state after another, and including here in the Washington area, um, almost nobody can get these vaccines, even if you're in one of the priority groups. It's so decentralized. You don't know where to go. Do you go to your local pharmacy? Do you go to your state government? Do you go to the supermarket? I mean, all of these are participants. Uh, hospitals sometimes have their own programs, but almost none of them are getting the vaccine. The, the, the number of doses available is so ridiculously low compared to even, I'm not talking about the whole American population here, even just, you know, these, these priority groups, like people live in nursing homes, people over 75, now in many states at the urging of the CDC, it's been open to people over 65. But getting them is just this entire wild goose chase and all the message boards. I saw one from Tom Friedman, uh, has won the Pulitzer, I think, three times, New York Times columnist, writing, does anybody know where to go to get this in Maryland? Because I can't figure it out. And it's not Friedman's fault. All right, anyway, that's the poll having to do with Biden's popularity. The contrast here is that Trump began his presidency. Remember, this is after winning the upset uh, victory in 2016 with 45% approval. 
I got to tell you, Trump was the outlier on that because almost every president, I mean, Biden being up in the 60s for now, look, in a, mo- in a week, in a month, in two months, in three months, is that number going to start to fall? Yeah. And I say that not because I think Biden's going to do not do a good job. I think it actually is off to a pretty good start. But, you know, all the problems are going to pile up and people are going to become frustrated. And increasingly, Joe Biden, not Donald Trump, is going to own those problems. But most presidents, you know, start off in the 50s or 60s and then they tick down and they kind of level off. In our polarized society, you know, Barack Obama was often in the mid to high 40s, sometimes low 40s. It's just the way, it's just the reality now, unless you win a war or do something spectacular. Um, Meanwhile, speaking of the virus, um, you know, Biden was taking some heat from the press. And and let me digress here for a moment. So Biden took some questions at a news conference yesterday. And the questioning, and the same thing at the Jen Psaki uh, daily briefing, questioning was more aggressive on issues than I have seen since Joe Biden became president. A lot of of it having to do with coronavirus. And so Biden was asked about, well, you know, this this is the thing that he snapped at the AP reporter about, like, isn't 100 million shots by the end of your first 100 days a pretty modest goal since we're kind of pretty close to that level anyway? And the press really kind of zeroed in on this. It's like, why is he setting such a low bar? Well, we all know why, because in politics, you don't want to boost expectations beyond your ability to deliver. So if Biden ends up ex- way exceeding uh, 100 million doses in the first 100 days, it looks like a great success. If he doesn't get there, it looks like a failure because whenever you give a number, you're setting a benchmark by which you can be judged. But yesterday, Biden backed off. He said, well, you know, 100 million, 100 million doses is the goal, but I now think that a uh, pretty good chance that maybe we can get to uh, 150 million over the next 100 days, with the grace of God, he added. Because we're about at 100, we're about at 1 million doses a day. He thinks we can get to 1.5 million doses a day. He set this goal in December, uh, before even any vaccine had been cleared, so maybe then it was a more aspirational goal. Uh, Biden said that to reach this new goal, government's going to have to set up many more vaccination sites, hire more people to administer the shots, ensure there are enough supplies of, uh, of things like syringes. He's asking Congress for more than $400 billion for this. This is part of the overall, overall nearly $2 trillion bill. Here's some quotes. It is going to be a logistical challenge that exceeds anything we've ever tried in this country, but I think we can do that. He said that by summer, we're going to be well on our way to heading toward herd immunity, meaning enough of the population, it's usually thought to be about 75 or 80%, has a, a vaccinated immunity that the virus spread slows down greatly because there aren't that many more people who can be affected. We'll also be well on our way uh, to making the vaccine, he says, available for children. Um, it's going, Okay, so he was also asked, well... Um, didn't you say you could do this in two months? He says, it's going to take time. It's going to take a heck of a lot of time. We are in this for a while. Now, even if we get these 150 million shots, when you realize the fact that in order to be fully protected, every American needs to get two doses, that would be protecting 75 million Americans, about 23% of the population. So even under Biden's most optimistic goal right now for the first 100 days, so that takes us into what? Uh, February, March, April, about mid-April, um, we're, we would only uh, vaccinate less than a quarter of the population. 
Meanwhile, uh, some of this was elicited by Fox News White House correspondent Peter Ducey, who I had on my show on Sunday. Uh, and one of the reasons that we kidded around, because when Jen Psaki called on him for a couple of questions, and the New York Times was like, oh my God, uh, this is really something. Uh, she called on a Fox News reporter, as if this never happened before. I mean, Fox News reporters were routinely called on in the Obama administration. And by the way, President Trump, sometimes he did it in order to beat up on them, or he had a great foil in Jim Acosta, but he routinely called on reporters for CNN and MSNBC, uh, you know, even while denouncing them. He routinely called on reporters for the New York Times, uh, as did his press secretaries, even while he said, you know, it was the failing New York Times. He routinely called on reporters for the Washington Post. But at the end of the news conference here, it was kind of wrapping up. This is yesterday. And um, Biden said, wait, wait, wait. And he looked at Peter Ducey. He says, I know he always asks me tough questions and they always have an edge to them, but I like him anyway. So go ahead and ask the question. So Peter Ducey actually asked the question about, you know, are you setting too low a bar with one million vaccinations a day? And Ducey said, look, your rhetoric, you said there was nothing the government could do to change the trajectory of the pandemic over the next several months. What happened to two months ago when you were talking about declaratively you were going to shut down the virus? And that's when Biden said, I am not going to shut down the virus. I never said I'd do it in two months. I said it took a long time to get here and a long time to beat it. We have millions of people out there who have the virus. We're just for the first day, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I've been doing other things this morning, speaking with foreign leaders, but one of the first days the numbers actually come down the number of deaths have come down. And this is true. I look at that number like a hawk every day. We were routinely over 4,000 deaths a day and well over 200,000 cases. For yesterday, the latest day we have figures for, we're down below 2,000 deaths. And as far as the number of cases, it was about 155,000. Now, those aren't great numbers, but they, were, they are down. And we hope it's not just an aberration. It is possible, and I'm hoping this is the case, that we are now seeing the end of the Christmas surge because it takes two, three, four weeks. Uh, you know, lots of people went to visit family and friends or just go on vacation at Christmas. Lots of people, including Fauci, warned about this. And then suddenly in mid to late January, the numbers just start to jump off the charts. So I hope that is the case. And that brings us to story number two. So last night, the House impeachment managers formally marched across the Capitol and presented the Senate with the single article of impeachment. And I must say, I just think this whole thing of like, and this was true in the first impeachment too, that you got to walk it over and have a ceremony presenting the piece of paper and read it on the floor. Just, I mean, this is, impeachment is in the Constitution, which, uh, you know, was written in the 18th century. These days, I mean, just text them. Just send it over, just post it on Snapchat, whatever. But, you know, Congress likes to do these sort of ritual things even in the electronic age. So um, now we have the question of what's going to happen in less than two weeks when the Senate impeachment trial starts. And what I've been saying is going to happen is Trump's not going to get convicted. And Joe Biden, this was not at his uh, sort of news conference, but he got stopped in the uh, hall of the West Wing by CNN, CNN's Caitlin Collins, and he, he stopped and he talked to her for you know a minute or two. And it's nice when a president does that. And she asked him about the impeachment trial, which Jen Psaki has been 
in a very disciplined fashion, ducking every question on this because she doesn't want Biden to be part of this impeachment thing. But I think President Biden recognizes he can't completely and totally finesse it. So what he told CNN was, I think it has to happen. This is a guy who had no position on impeachment, but he now says the trial has to happen. Well, that's kind of not very remarkable to say that because under law, under the Constitution, once the House votes to impeach, even though he's out of office, it has to happen. Uh, He went on to say, well, at least we've got this uh, two weeks and there would be a worse effect if it didn't happen. He acknowledged that the Senate impeachment trial is going to have an impact on his legislative agenda and cabinet nominations, but a worse effect if it didn't happen. So he's kind of edging toward, yeah, it's good that the Senate is having this impeachment trial. But he said to CNN, he doesn't think 17 Republican senators will vote to convict Trump. Quote, the Senate has changed since I was there, but it hasn't changed that much. And of course, Biden is right, and everybody knows it. And I know it's a different situation because of Mitch McConnell. I mean, you have the now Senate minority leader certainly saying he's open um, to a conviction, not committing to vote to convict Donald Trump, um, and, and saying that he believes, and he said this a couple times now, Mitch McConnell believes Donald Trump helped incite the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. So New York Times story, you know, kind of is laying out the reality of it. Uh, You know, it tries to put a little bit of a spin on it. Unlike Trump's last impeachment, when his party quickly rallied behind him, several Republicans, including McConnell, have signaled they are open to convicting the former president after his mendacious campaign, remember, this is a straight news story, to overturn his election laws turned deadly. Uh, That would allow the Senate to take a second vote to bar him from ever holding office again. That's the only thing at stake here. Donald Trump is in Mar-a-Lago. He just opened his office in Palm Beach. He's not going to be president for the next four years. I think he has a very limited ability. I I think he has a lot of political clout when it comes to uh, campaigning or endorsing people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's now running for her dad's old job as the governor of Arkansas. But as far as whipping up violence, I don't think so. And then the next sentence, even the Times concedes, but at least at the trial's outset, Their numbers, Republican numbers, fell well short of the 17 needed to join Democrats to secure a conviction, which also assumes that all 50 Democrats uh, would vote to convict. So the Times actually did some shoe leather here. A survey on the eve of the trial found that 27 Republican senators have expressed opposition to charging Trump or holding him accountable by impeachment. 16 Republicans indicated they were undecided. Seven did not respond to the paper. So 16, 7, so it's 23 that aren't in a firm position against convicting Trump. But you got to know that most of those are just going to duck it because they have it out. Here's Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Republican who has been a pretty loyal Trump ally. Why are we doing this? It said, I can't think of something more divisive and unhealing than doing an impeachment trial when the president has already gone. It's just vindictive. It's ridiculous. That's going to be what they say, folks. That's going to be what they say. Uh, And there is a strong argument that he's out of office. Why do you need to go through with this? It seems kind of crazy to a lot of people. I think Biden said in part of the court I didn't read to you, it would be different if Trump had six months left in office and that maybe then more senators would be roused to get him out of office. But he is a former president. And that, uh, I think, is going to loom pretty large here. By the way, McConnell had been holding out until today. 
this 50-50 Democratic Senate with Kamala breaking the tie, they haven't even been able to like organize the committees or name the committee chairman because McConnell would not go along. And it's a 50-50 Senate. And he said, unless you Democrats uh, swear off uh, getting rid of the filibuster, I'm not moving. Well, he dropped that demand because he, he overreached. He, he was never going to get this. There were two Democrats who said they don't support uh, abolishing the filibuster, and some kind of said, well, with that assurance, I will drop my demand. So now they'll work out some kind of power-sharing agreement. But that doesn't mean this filibuster thing goes away, and the Democrats would have been crazy to give it up. So there's going to be a lot more pressure on Democrats, particularly if there's no bipartisanship, if you can't get the COVID bill passed with some Republican votes, if Republicans are trying to block maybe Biden judges after certainly doing everything they could to get Trump judges on the bench, then I think we might see frustrated Democrats, perhaps with Biden's um, agreement, try to get rid of the filibuster or limit its use, just as they did back in 2013 with Harry Reid, said you can't use it for Supreme Court nominees. And I don't know whether that'll happen or not. It's the chamber, you know, you're always reluctant to give up the filibuster because you say, well, in two years, I could be in the minority and then I would have no recourse. I wouldn't have that weapon and the other party could run roughshod over me. So that's one of the reasons I think it survived as long as it has. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. There is a growing debate about free speech in this country and particularly having to do with the role of journalists in free speech. And it really troubles me because I'm a free speech guy. First Amendment to the Constitution, Congress shall make no law. And it troubles me when you had incidents like when the New York Times editorial page editor got fired because he had the temerity to run an op-ed online. It wasn't even in the paper by Republican Senator Tom Cotton. You're seeing a lot of examples of that now. So Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, uh, is exercised about this. He says, the American media, long the stalwart defenders of the First Amendment, are having second thoughts. And it's true. The two landmark Supreme Court decisions are New York Times versus Sullivan, 1964, which made it harder to sue for libel if you're a public figure, and the Pentagon Papers case, 1971, uh, the high court ruling against no prior restraint. In other words, the government can't, as they did in the case of the Pentagon Papers with the New York Times and then the Washington Post, uh, can't go to court and say, uh, this news organization must be in blocked, legally blocked from publishing something while we fight it out. No, now the, the newspaper or magazine or website gets to publish and then you fight it out. So uh, Lowry says journalists have lurched from finding a threat to freedom of the press in every criticism of reporters and news outlets by Donald Trump to themselves calling for unwelcome media organizations to be shut down. Now, some of this is aimed at Fox News. You have, I, I, I don't really like giving this oxygen, but you have uh, people at certain organizations that lean very left saying, Fox News shouldn't be allowed to be on the air. Fox News should be shut down. Well, there's no legal way to push Fox News off the air. Um, you can call for a boycott. There have been a lot of those. Uh, they rarely succeed. Uh, and it's simply, you know, well, Fox News, people on Fox News, they didn't tell the truth about the election. Um, you know, completely leaving aside the fact that this might be a relative handful of people or Fox News guests, as opposed to the news division, which, as you'll recall, many Trump supporters actually angry about Fox because Fox was the first network to project a Biden win in Arizona. And then uh, several days after Election Day, I guess it was that Saturday, Fox joined with CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS in saying that Joe Biden had won the election. And there were numerous Fox reports 
about the court cases that uh, Trump and his team filed, um, challenging the results in places like Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia, and reporting quite fairly and honestly that there was no um, widespread fraud, as the DOJ found. So Washington Post columnist Max Boot saying it's really aimed at right-wing media organizations that are more conservative than him. And this, this column by Larry notes that Steve Cole is an old colleague of mine, guy I greatly respect, former managing editor of the Washington Post, now the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, where I also attended many decades before, I should hasten to add. He uh, had this quote, those of us in journalism have, have to come to terms with the fact that free speech, a principle we hold sacred, is being weaponized against the principles of journalism. Uh, there's a collision there of two different kinds of rights. And by the way, uh, Josh Hawley, I talked about this, uh, you know, he's getting dragged, I talked about this on Fox yesterday. Joe Scarborough went after Hawley, who had this big piece in the New York Post saying it's against cancel culture. He says he's been canceled because he lost a book contract, but later found another publisher. Scarborough saying Hawley has to be the dumbest guy in the United States Senate. He's a seditionist. He led an insurrection. He's responsible for cops being murdered. Well, that's a bit of a leap, Joe to say that Josh Hawley is responsible for police officers being murdered. Yes, he challenged the election results. Yes, you can argue that that's an awful thing and that it inspired people to uh, storm the Capitol. But I hate the sort of blood-on-the-hands formulation. But one more point about free speech. I thought this was done with. But remember Politico was having different guest people, guest write its playbook. One of them was Ben Shapiro, uh, a very uh, sharp-edged conservative who a lot of people on the left don't like. Well, you know, it happened. Politico defended it. By the way, it was okay for for Chris Hayes, uber-liberal MSNBC, to do guest writing of the playbook. It was okay for people like Sam Stein to do it. But Ben Shapiro does. So now 100 Politico staffers, more than 100, have signed a letter to the publisher. They're still ticked off about this. They're still, they say, oh, Shapiro has said this, that, and the other in the past. He wrote one, he was the guest writer for one day. And the letter criticizes the response from political editor-in-chief, Matt Kaminsky, who defended the decision, refused to apologize, said we tried to experiment and mix things up. The letter also wants a clarification about political's editorial standards, an increase in newsroom diversity, an editor's note on Shapiro uh, being able to write playbook, an internal apology for the way management handled it. Well, there's a lot of people who work there, but this is more than 100. All right. Speaking of free speech, uh, story number four, Twitter has announced a new pilot project called Birdwatch. It kind of uses crowdsourcing to combat falsehoods and misleading statements. So in other words, instead of you being banned or your tweets being taken down, this is a separate website now. About a thousand people can do this in the pilot project. It's open to certain contributors. They will be allowed to write notes with corrections and accurate information to reply to misleading tweets. And so if you're looking at the tweet, Rather than having to hunt around, you would, you would, there would be a link there, and you could go, and you could see what, whatever is sort of the consensus of the crowd. In other words, the, the people who do this, they say, okay, so-and-so is full of BS, and this is wrong. And then the whole Twitter community, if it gets retweeted a lot or endorsed, that those would be bumped up. It would be, this would be the consensus. Now, obviously, this is open to abuse when you have a lot of people on the left or the right or people of a certain ideology um, trying to boost the popularity of certain knockdowns. But you know what? I kind of like that approach better than the uh, kicking people off, deleting their tweets, unless it's an incitement to violence or hate speech or bullying. 
Um, I'd rather fight speech with more speech. And that seems to be the Twitter approach. We'll see how that goes. And that leads me to story number five. Uh, you know, there are a lot of snowflakes out there. Donald Trump is no longer president, but the very liberal website Salon says, many of us are now at high risk for the development of trauma, stress-related, anxiety-related symptoms, or even PTSD. We've been subjected to physical and psychological abuse by the now-departed president. Um, our crippled economy, anxiety, Trump's racism, xenophobia, misogyny, nativism, and white supremacy, it's all so terrible. I, I, I don't mean to make light of people who felt you know, triggered by the Trump presidency, but the Trump presidency is over. Go to the White House website. You'll see a picture of Joe Biden. Trump's down at Mar-a-Lago. And this goes on to say millions of Americans continue to view Trump as their beloved cult leader. And that in and of itself, of course, is triggering that people still like him in America. Even though he has been defeated, disgraced, and repudiated, Trump's followers have been radicalized by the cumulative effects of his lies, conspiracy theories, magical thinking, and false narratives. Donald Trump is a proven traitor. I mean, this goes on and on and on. Uh, perhaps in the legal sense as well as the colloquial one. He spent four years disavowing the Constitution, attacking our democracy. He must be prosecuted and punished for his misdeeds and malfeasance. Well, I'm not mocking people who believe that. I know people believe that even though he's out of office, that's why we should have the impeachment trial. And then people say, that's not enough. We must prosecute him. He must go to jail and all of that. But this is the sentence in Salon that caught my eye. We know that victims of abuse are better able to recover their self-esteem and hopefulness when abusers are held to account and victim safety is assured. So what this is saying is millions of Americans are just so destroyed and they have so much PTSD because Donald Trump was president that they can't sleep at night. They can't rest easy until their abuser, the former president of the United States, is somehow brought to account, brought to justice, uh, banished, hard and feathered, whatever. Uh, but the thing is, he's the former president. Doesn't you know? I'm not taking a position here whether there should be an impeachment trial, whether a criminal prosecution should go forward. But I'm sorry, these people sound like a bunch of snowflakes. He he, he won the presidency. You had to deal with him for four years. Get over it. Now the people who wanted Donald Trump to win a second term have to accept the fact, in my view that Joe Biden was legally elected and gets to be president for the next four years. It's called democracy, folks. And with that, thank you all for listening. You know where you can subscribe, Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, Amazon Device. Uh, I enjoy doing this. Hope you enjoy listening. We're back here tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.